Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. The Monday after an NFL Sunday, there is always a decision that I've got to make when I sit down. Where am I going to start first? Is it going to be with Graham Gano's monster game-winning field goal? Is it going to be with the Cowboys punting in overtime and then losing? Or am I going to start with America's team, the Cleveland Browns? I'm always faced with that decision. Actually, I'm not going to start with Sunday at all, even though I was in New York for the NFL and CBS, and it was awesome. I'm not starting with Sunday. I'm starting with Saturday night and UFC 229, the most expected, unexpected fight that I've seen in a long, long time. And it was good even before we got to the title fight. Yet Derek Lewis dropping the post-fight comment of a lifetime. I'm here with the winner, Derek Lewis. Derek, why'd you take your pants off? My balls was hot. I understand. Listen, man, what you just did was absolutely phenomenal. That was an incredible comeback victory, and it shows one of the reasons why people love to watch you fight, that you can put it all to bed with one shot. I told them, boys, I got no more heart. You know, they keep underestimating me. I ain't all that technical and all that, but I'm getting there. No one will question your heart, sir, after this. Let's take a look at the knockout. This is a come-from-behind knockout, the likes that we haven't seen in a long time. And you were looking for that big haymaker all night. You found it in the last minute of the fight. Talk us through this, Derek. I forgot a few hours before the fight, Donald Trump called me and told me I got knocked this Russian motherfucker out because they're making him look bad on the news. You know, him and Putin and shit. what they're talking about, USA and his whole. Listen, Derek, you came into this fight, the number two contender with that knockout. You're absolutely one of the top guys in line for a shot at the title next. So tell us what you think about that. I need to sit my black ass down and do some more cardio. <laughs> what you talking about right now? I ain't trying to fight for no title right now. Don't have no gas tank like that. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. I mean, that was worth the pay-per-view money right there. That performance in the cage and then afterwards was worth the pay-per-view money right there. But then there was more. Then you had Anthony Pettis and Tony Ferguson turning in some of the best action you're ever going to see. As I tweeted during that fight, Pettis is one of the toughest dudes you'll ever see, but my man looked like he got hit by a train. But as good as all of that was, it was nothing more than the tailgate for Khabib and Connor. Habib and Connor, that fight had been a long time in the making. That buildup had been amazing going back to the bus attack in Brooklyn. Through all the press conferences, all the interviews, truth is, truth is, it actually goes back even farther than that, much farther. These guys hate each other, and it was real hate, not some of that contrived hate to move pay-per-views and sell tickets inside the building. The hate was real, and as we'd find out later, just how deep that hate was. So, everybody was geeked. Hell, I was in New York City, in my hotel room, on my lapper, waiting for a fight that was going to start past midnight when I had an early call for the NFL on CBS the next morning. Fact is, well, fact is, East Coasters, brief aside, I have never understood how you do that. I have never understood how y'all wait for games that start past 9 o'clock at night. I don't get it. And now that I lived it that Saturday, I really don't get it. But the fact of the matter is, for a fight like that, I would have pulled an all-nighter and rolled into work because that was the most hyped and arguably the most important fight in UFC history. And from the outset, it was clear why Connor was the underdog. Wrestler v. Striker went to the wrestler, and it wasn't even close. The dude who grew up wrestling bears had absolutely no problem wrestling Connor. Got him to the mat, and then he mauled him. The big question coming in was, could Connor catch Habib a good shot before Habib got him to the mat? The next question was, if Connor did go to the mat, was he going to be able to get back up? And the answer was an emphatic no. He could not catch him early, and he couldn't get back up. And if that was your first time seeing Habib, then you got the full-blown Habib treatment. This guy's incredible. He's unreal. I mean, so dominant on the ground. He drains the energy and sucks the life right out of you. Yes, a lot of you were there to see Connor do what he does best. Run his mouth, 
than show up and put a cat to sleep. Because as Dana White likes to say, when, when Connor hits people, they don't get up. Except he couldn't land that one shot that he had to have. And while many of you are not members of the Ground and Pound Nation, no one does this better than Habib. This is why this guy has never lost a fight. This is why until Saturday, he had never even lost a round. You might not like watching it. But if you know anything at all about that sport, this cat is brilliant. And was again on the biggest stage that he's ever been on. That was another one of the big question marks. How would this guy react to a stage that big? Didn't bother him at all. Didn't phase him at all. So what might have been boring to you if you didn't know what you were watching was Habib being masterful. The guy put on a freaking clinic. Connor was pretty much never in that fight. Habib never in trouble. So that first round was mostly Connor on the ground trying to defend himself and trying to escape from Habib and failing at both. The second round, more the same, except worse, because Connor was eating one brutal shot after another. How he didn't tap in that second round or go unconscious there, I'll never know. Like if you had said to me in the middle of round two, I'll bet you a grand that this fight is still going in the fourth round, I would have taken that bet all day long. Because there was no way Connor was getting out of that round. And when he did, I couldn't help but wonder, was that a testament to Connor's heart? Or was that Habib carrying him another round or so could he so he could inflict even greater damage on McGregor and completely change his face the way that he had promised to do coming into that fight? He said that before the fight. I'm going to change this man's face. He also said before the fight, it was not about the money. It wasn't even about the belt. It was personal. And that he wanted to permanently change Connor's face. Then came the third round. The two of them were trading shots. Connor actually got the better of it. And for a moment, it looked like maybe, maybe Connor had somehow put himself back in that fight. That maybe Habib, who looks like he could go on forever, had actually wrestled himself out. I mean, crazy as it sounds, and I'm sure Connor fans were trying to talk themselves into it, maybe this guy did have a plan, a plan that I would never advise, but maybe the plan was to let Habib gas out and then catch this guy late fight. Maybe Connor could pull a miracle. Maybe, except for one thing. Connor was exhausted. He was snapping off punches, but there was no, no snap in them. There was no power behind them. And Habib knew it. He knew he was going to win. It was just a matter of when and how and if. If it already left the arena, actually. So, Connor wins the third round. And to the extent that it matters, he was the first guy ever to take a round off of Habib. That's how good and how dominant that guy is. But when the fourth round started, it looked like there might be more of the same from the third. Maybe Connor catches him off balance. Maybe he can summon that one monster left. That would change not only the course of that fight, but the course of the sports history. Maybe that. Yeah, maybe that or maybe Habib easily gets Connor into a rear naked choke. And then that's that. As soon as he sunk that in, it was just a matter of whether or not Connor went to sleep or not. Because that fight was over. Not the night, but the fight. Because in that moment, Habib remained your lightweight champ. So not only is this guy undefeated, he's rarely been challenged. He's never been in trouble. And he wasn't Saturday night either. Well, not until after the fight. But this guy not only controlled the fight on the ground, but in one of the most stunning moments of the night, he dropped Connor with a strike. So Habib's never been better. He's never been more dominant. And he did it on the biggest stage against one of the best ever to do it. Connor left the arena. And he didn't talk to anybody, but when he did show up on Twitter, Connor was talking about a rematch. You know, fine, I guess. I'd pay to see it. I just don't see how the rematch goes any differently for Connor, not given how much better Habib is on the mat. Connor couldn't catch him, and he couldn't stay off the mat. How is that going to change between now and whenever these two fight again, if they fight again? I'm not saying Habib is unbeatable. Nobody is. Everybody in that sport gets beat eventually. Everybody. Ask Jose Aldo. Ask Ronda Rousey. Ask Anderson Silva. That's the best thing about the UFC. Everybody gets beat. Unbeatable is impossible. Habib will lose at some point. But based on what I saw Saturday, and as much as I love and respect McGregor as a fighter, I don't think he's the guy who's going to get Habib. That's how badly he got dominated. I mean, sure, he can improve on that. 
I just don't see him improving enough to beat Habib. I don't see that. Not when he got beat every way possible. He beat the hell out of Connor. I have never seen the look on McGregor's face that I saw when he was sitting on that mat once it was over. You know, the look on his face right before Habib's dudes jumped him. And that one bleep sucker punched him from behind. You know that part where they took what should have been the best night ever for Team Habib and they wrecked it? I'll hit that melee a little bit later on. This is two monster takes off that night. That's my take, though, on what happened prior to the melee. That's my take on what happened in the fight. That's my take on how good, really how awesome Habib was during the fight. And we'll talk about what happened after the fight. And now check this. We all love a night out, right? You got to get after it. You got to get out. Maybe it's a date night. Maybe it's something else. And we all love to do different things. Maybe it's seeing your favorite band in person or being there in the crowd to cheer on your favorite team. With Vivid Seats, a brand new sponsor here, you can attend the concert, the show, or sporting event of your choice and do so at a great price. Here's what I like about Vivid Seats. It is the top source for tickets for all the live events that you want to go to, and you can sort by price or look for the seats in the section and the row of your choice. And to make it even better, Vivid Seats is reaching out to you new customers and will give you a promo code, which will give you 10% off your first ticket order so you can save even more money. Here's what you do. You go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers, make sure you use the promo code ROAM and get 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every single purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats has it all. Make sure you download that app and enter the promo code ROAM and get 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime. Let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. Vivid Seats. This is a great company with an awesome proposition. Check it out yourself. Vivid Seats. Jason Lockenfora is my guest. Jason, it is great to have you back. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well, and it is the last of those things that you said, Jim, that matters the most. That, oh, man. That's one for the epitaph. Yeah, no right doubt. There. And Thank I'm not talking about the record label. No. <laughs> Jason, great to have you. I appreciate you saying that because that's the way I'm always going to introduce you. Jason, why don't we start with the Dallas Cowboys? Let me start first with Jason Garrett. What do you make of the way he handled, well, pretty much everything in yesterday's loss to the Texans? I mean, I, I think we've kind of come to accept this is who the Cowboys basically are and have been under Jason Garrett, and they're not incredibly inspiring. They kind of leave you scratching your head quite a bit, especially the combination of Garrett and Scott Linehan with that offense the last couple of years. I guess the thing is, does it matter, Jim? Like, if it doesn't matter in the end to Jerry Jones, and Jerry Jones likes running this team kind of through Jason Garrett, and he's a head coach, who's the path of least resistance to sort of getting whatever I want to get out there and sort of the my conduit to directly to the team. I think at this stage of his life and his career, that's what Jerry Jones wants. I mean, yeah, it's about winning, but go look at their actual payroll the last three years. Dollars spent on players. It's in the bottom five of the NFL. He obviously has a team that's worth whatever. What did Forbes say? I don't know, four or five billion. And he's got that Taj Mahal there, you know, in Arlington, the stadium. Um, but are they really going all out to win? And for Jerry Jones right now, is it more about having Jason Garrett around than it would be going through a headstrong coach like he's had in the past with a, Jim, with, with a Bill Parcells and wanting those checks and balances in that conflict? I, I don't know, Jim. I, I think he kind of likes rolling with Jason Garrett. No, I think you're right. I think that he's in it to win it, I guess. But I think that he's in it to make a lot of money. He's in it to have all of us look at him and talk about him. But Garrett, I mean, Jason Garrett's the coach. You know he wants to win. So let me ask you this. If the thinking had been that Dallas has got this monster offensive line and they've got Ezekiel Elliott, one of the best running backs in the league, what in the world is Garrett doing punting on fourth and one from the opposing 42 in overtime? I, I don't have a clue. I, I didn't get it then. I, I won't get it now. 
Um, the one thing you'd think they could do offensively is impose their will. Now, they've had, obviously, some health issues and some injuries to that offensive line. It's not nearly as airtight as it was a couple of years ago. Um, so, uh, saying all that, though, Ezekiel Elliott missed a lot of time last year because of a suspension. He's still a young running back. There's plenty of tread on those tires, and I would be taking multiple cracks with him in that situation. I, I, I don't understand it. Uh, I, I mean, most of the time when you play to tie in this league, I think it comes back to bite you. Bill O'Brien, you know, eight days ago being uh, the example to the contrary, he got away with it. But I, I don't think it sends the right message to your players, especially at this point in the season. And with Dallas having a chance to get above 500 and make a push at a time when the Eagles are kind of in a malaise. I don't know that we know exactly what the Redskins are. And the Giants have a new drama every week. So I think it's opportunity lost. But again, is it really out of character for these Cowboys and Jason Garrett's Cowboys? Not to me. Jason Lockenfora joining us. And if you're watching on CBS Sports Network, you are seeing him on the TV side as well. Jason, you had this great detail about Baker Mayfield. During the Raiders games, the Cleveland receivers had a number of drops. Offensive coordinator Todd Haley was about to light them up, but Baker stepped in. What did he say to Haley? And then what did Haley make of that? Yeah, it was pretty neat. You know, I caught up with Todd over the week, and I'm like, hey, take me behind the veil a little bit about this kid because we see a lot of what he can do, and we know there's a lot of moxie and leadership there. And he's like, you know, look, I saw it originally at his pro day, and that, that's a whole other story for another time. But, you know, they had three drops early in that game. They had a tip ball that led directly to a pick six that was not Mayfield's fault. And Todd felt like, I got to stand up for my quarterback here and get these veterans, whip them into shape. And if you know anything about Todd, uh, he doesn't back down from many fights. And Baker kind of saw all this coming, and he just said, Coach, I got it, man. Let, let me do this. Relax. Get, give me this. And Haley said it, it, he did it in a very disarming way. Todd gladly stepped back. Baker laid into him a little bit. Then he coached him up. And they went out and field goal, touchdown, touchdown, and really took over that game. And then Cleveland's defense ended up wilting late, and they lost it. But that's just a little glimpse into what this kid and what was his first NFL start was willing to do and how he commands veterans and how that coaching staff is already willing to delegate to him at certain points because they wanted to be his team. And Todd said, it's the greatest thing ever. When you when you got a guy that young who can already start to coach him up, he's like, I don't want to coach him. I want them, you know, to take what I'm giving them and then make it their own. So um, it was a big moment for them. They obviously lost that game, but we saw plenty of Baker Mayfield under duress, keeping that team in the game, and then ultimately that drive that that led to the game-winning field goal in overtime uh, against the Ravens Sunday. Jason Lockenfora joining us. All right, so keep it in the division for a minute, Jason. The Steelers have been very unSteeler-like this year, but they put a beat down on the Falcons, yeah. 41. 41- to 17 so my question is does that game say more about the Steelers or does it say more about the Falcons I, I think it's probably revealing of both of sort of their their inner core right now Pittsburgh every time we want to put a fork in them they show up right I mean they, they had their early travails then they make a statement then they roll over against the Ravens now they make another statement you know I I think in the end, that offense will be enough to overcome that defense more often than not. And, and let's face it, the AFC is, I think, a little easier path than the NFC. So, I, 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 you know, I think the Steelers are going to round into form at some point and still be fairly formidable. And Atlanta, I think, is lost and sort of adrift, and that's a team in crisis. I, they had this stretch, right, seven games and then the bye. Five of those seven are at home. The best case is they're three and four at the bye, and that requires them to beat the Giants and the Bucks. They've given up 121 points in three weeks. I got news for you. The Bucks are going to score some points on them, and so will the Giants. The offensive line's a concern now. Matt Ryan's under pressure. He doesn't fare that well under pressure. Julio Jones doesn't touch the ball until garbage time. And, I mean, I talked to people on the Steelers' staff. I'm like, if you guys really felt like you needed to hang 55 on them yesterday, could you? And they're like, absolutely. We called off the dogs in the fourth quarter because, you know, we, we had the game in hand. So, I think Atlanta's in big-time trouble, Jim. And I wonder if one of their coordinators gets told during the bye, we don't need you anymore. And I wonder if owner Arthur Blank, who thought maybe he would be hosting a Super Bowl with his team in it this year, doesn't put some people on notice in the second half of, of the season. He's not paying his quarterback $30 million. He doesn't have all these first-round picks on defense to be getting whacked like this. Well, I was about to say, Jason, CBS has got the Super Bowl, but we don't need to worry about the Falcons hosting that game because that's not happening. They've lost yep. three straight. They're one and four. Before you go, let me ask about the Packers and 
Aaron Rodgers and his relationship with Mike McCarthy. Aaron Rodgers had been pretty critical of the Green Bay offense in the four week four win, and then Detroit got them yesterday. I understand they're banged up, and especially at the wide receiver position, but how would you describe the relationship right now between Rodgers and head coach Mike McCarthy? Ah, uh, boy, I, I would say a little bit testy, uh, certainly under the microscope. And there's frustration all around that offense on various levels. There's frustration about the personnel. There's frustration about the scheme. There's frustration about the execution. There's frustration about injuries. But I think schematically now, if you're Aaron Rodgers and you're looking around the league on a weekly basis, and he is, he's a gym rat and he's a football rat, and you see what a guy like Trubisky is being given by Nagy and the, and the opportunities to succeed, and you see Andy Reid with Mahomes, and, and you know, you, you just you continue to see every week some of this creativity and these wrinkles, and then Green Bay, it's just really not there. It's not a lot of pre-stop snap motion. It's not a ton of misdirection. Um, it's a lot of isolation routes, and go beat your guy, and, and that's great when you've got Jordy Nelson in his prime and Randall Cobb previous you know to injuries and and maybe when you have a, a featured back a real running back they don't have any of that going on right now and you know McCarthy's only signed through 2019 this could be very interesting do they really give him a long-term extension if they don't does he come back as a lame duck for 2019 Aaron Rodgers at 36 million a year and new money you're going to want to really exact everything you can out of him while he's still in his prime I don't know how long this marriage will last, Jim. I mean, it's been a good one to this point and everything. You know, it's like 10 years is, is no small potatoes. But those two together again next year, I wouldn't bet on it. And, Jason, since you built that TV studio in your home, I want to hit you with one more question. I want to take advantage oh, of this opportunity, studio, man. Huh? It looks yeah. awesome. It looks awesome on CBS Sports Network. Listen, you don't want to pan that camera out, brother. Trust me. Trust me. You don't me. want to pan it out. No, dude, I would not call it a studio. Dude, you're being very humble about this. It looks awesome. Listen, I was in the studio with yeah. you on the NFL and CBS yesterday. We talked about the state of New York football. Let me ask you this. The Giants let another one get away yesterday. If you're looking at the situation right now with the New York football teams, who would you rather have, Saquon Barkley or Sam Darnold? Give me the quarterback. Um, you're not winning with a running back in this league, right? I mean, look at the Dallas Cowboys. We just chronicled it. I mean, unless you want to run Zeke Elliott 50 times a game and see how that works, um, you're in trouble. And even if Barkley is Elliott, where does that get you if you're behind the eight ball at the quarterback position? Uh, I'm sure we talked about it in the offseason. It was sort of my mantra. I wrote about it a lot. To me, the Denver Broncos and New York Giants were the teams in each conference who were fooling themselves. You can pretend that a Case Keenum or an Eli Manning with a bunch of Band-Aids and, and, you know, Post-it notes and paper clips are going to hold it together to make you a contender. Or you could look at this generational quarterback draft and do the right thing for the next 10 to 15 years for your franchises. Neither did it. I think both will pay the price short and long term. They've got a quarterback problem. Yeah, they got offensive line problem too and yada, yada, yada. But the quarterback is not getting any better. He hasn't been, in my estimation, even an average quarterback for the last couple of years. And the guys on that team know it. And if you're, you're Odell Beckham and you're like Aaron Rodgers watching these other games and you're thinking, man, where's my Mahomes? Where's my Deshaun Watson? Where's my maybe Trubisky? You know, where's my uh, Allen? Where, where's my Baker Mayfield? Well, he's not on that roster. He is the best insider in the game. An NFL insider for CBS Sports and CBSSports.com. He appears every Sunday on the NFL Today on CBS. And do not forget, also the host of Be More Opinionated podcast. GLC, I know you had a long weekend. So good to have you on the show. You look great and really nice to have you back. <laughs> uh, my pleasure, buddy. Anytime. You know, if you thought that Ferguson v. Pettis was the appetizer for Habib v. Connor. Then Habib v. Connor was the appetizer for Team Habib v. The World. You bought a five-fight main card on pay-per-view, and then you got another one. Free fight. Bonus fight. Because UFC 229 was the undercard for UFC 229B. No sooner than Connor tapped than Habib completely lost his mind. He looked like he spit on Connor, I think. I'm not sure of that. I'm not saying for certain, but it looked like it. But I know he threw his mouthpiece in the cage. I know he jumped over the cage to get at a member of Connor's team. Yes, I said it. The most dominant fighter in UFC finished a lightweight title, a title fight for millions, and then jumped into the crowd to fight a member of the guy's team that he just choked out. And in doing so, this guy might have cost him a hell of a lot of money. 
he may have cost himself a huge stack of cash. If Connor attacking Habib's bus in Brooklyn was the craziest thing that I've ever seen, then Habib attacking Connor's team in Vegas is the second craziest. Both fighters have made it clear that it was personal and that once the fight was over, it was not really over, and that was pretty clear. And it wasn't just the chaos of Habib going into the crowd to fight Dylan Dennis. At least two members of Team Habib attacked Connor. One rushed him from the front while another coward came over the fence and sucker punched him from behind. I mean, complete and utter chaos. Habib takes the greatest night of his career and turns it into an absolute mess. I mean, that in and of itself was a complete and utter moron move. And while many of you loved it, Dana White, for one, was not amused. Uh, I saw one of Connor's guys yelling at Habib, and Habib ran and jumped over the octagon, went, went after him. Then eventually, two of Habib's guys got into the octagon, and one guy hit Connor with some shots and uh, from behind. And then uh, that's it. That's, that's, what, that's, that's what I've seen. I, I haven't looked. The Nevada State Athletic Commission pulled footage from us, and uh, you know there's an investigation going on. They are withholding Habib's purse. They are not withholding Conor McGregor's. They looked at the footage and felt that there was no need to hold his, withhold his purse. So they gave him his, and they're, they're, they're keeping Habib's. Where I mean, would you say this ranks as terms of crazy moments in your career? Number one, two and three. Yeah. Imagine being Habib, putting in all that time, putting in all that time and fighting a brilliant fight and then not getting your purse. I mean, total chaos. Total chaos is they try to get Connor out of the cage as quickly as they could. And then maybe if you were watching that at home and you listened to the conversation, Habib kept saying, where's my belt? Where's my belt? Give me my belt. Put my belt on me. Give me my belt. Where's my belt? And Dana said, the last thing we were going to do was put that belt around that guy's waist. I felt that if we put the belt on him in the middle of the octagon, it was going to rain. And I thought that people would throw whatever they had into the octagon, and I thought it would be a dangerous situation, so I didn't do it. I said, we're going to be lucky just getting him out of here without him getting pelted. A smart move by Dana. Imagine being Dana. Like, if you're Dana White, you never know night to night what's going to happen in those events. And crazy things happen every single time they have an event. And Dana does not have the benefit of being able to sit back and think about this decision or that. He's got to act quickly every single time. That was a smart move by Dana White. That would have been a dangerous, dangerous situation and a terrible look for the sport if they put that belt around his waist and then people started throwing things into the ring, into the cage, and people got hurt. And as far as Habib and Team Habib, I mean, I want to again say this guy was masterful in that fight. But after the fight, the hell was Habib thinking? First of all, I want to say sorry to Athletic Commission, Nevada, sorry to Vegas. I know this is not my best side. You know, this is not my best side. You know, I'm human being. Like, I don't understand how people can talk about I jump on the cage, you know. What about he talk about my religion? He talk about my country. He talk about my father. He come to Brooklyn and he broke bus. He almost killed a couple people. What about this? What about this? Why people talk about I jump over the cage? Why people still talk about this? Like, I don't understand. I think I can help you with that, Habib. I think that I can help you with that. People are talking about how you jumped out of the cage because... You jumped out of the cage. That's how that's the topic. People still talk about it because it happened about five seconds ago. Now, you are right. You are right in saying that Connor talked about your religion. Connor talked about your country. Connor talked about your father. Connor did cross the line there. He did. But you didn't just cross the line after the fight. You flew right past it. This is a respect sport, you know. This is not trash-talking sport. This is respect. So like I told you before, guys, I want to change this game. I don't want people talk about like opponents, talk about his father, like like religion. You you cannot talk about religion. You cannot talk about nation. You know, guys, you cannot talk about this stuff. And, you know, this is for me is very important. You know, you're right. You are right when you say that. And I believe Habib when he says he wants it to be a respect sport. And not a trash-talking sport. 
I believe him when he says that. But when you just jumped out of the cage to fight somebody, and when members of your team were attacking Connor, three of whom were arrested, one of whom sucker punched him in a cowardly fashion from behind, when that happens, unfortunately, Habib, you concede the moral high ground on that. If he had smashed Connor the way that he did in that fight and then rolled right into the press conference and talked about respect and eliminating trash talking and saying that what Connor said about race or religion or family or country, that would be totally different. Totally different. But you going into the stands was nearly as bad as Connor trying to get into your bus. The only reason it wasn't and that Connor trying to get into your bus was the craziest thing I've ever seen is because Connor got on an airplane to do it. You just jumped the fence. So, who is to blame here? Habib, for sure. You can't jump out of the cage to fight somebody in the crowd. And you can't have members of your own team jumping into the cage to fight a guy who just went three-plus rounds and tapped. Not only not cool, borderline criminal. And according to reports, police did hold three members of Team Habib, but they were released when Connor declined to press charges. That's how that night could have ended. With Habib not getting a belt and multiple members of his team getting handcuffed. So, Habib jumping out of the cage and his guys jumping into it is entirely on Habib. There's no excuse for that. No matter what Connor said, there is no excuse to that. Habib needs to stop jumping out of the cage to fight people. Connor, on the other hand, is also not without blame. Connor needs to stop saying racist bleep in the buildup to fights. It's not okay. It's not all right. It's not cool. I'm not going to defend what Connor said. Connor crossed the line. And I'm also not going to say, yeah, well, Connor does this all the time. Guys should be used to it by now. So therefore, it's okay for him to say it because he said it in the past. It's not okay. In fact, the fact is, he should have stopped doing it a long time ago. Yes, I've been on record as saying this guy is an amazing showman. Yes, this guy is really compelling. But I've never been on record as saying, hey, isn't that awesome when he goes to that racist, ethnic smack talk? He should have stopped doing that a long time ago. This guy, Conor McGregor, is the greatest showman I think I've ever seen. Conor McGregor is the greatest bleep talker I have ever seen. He does not need to go racist, ethnic, or bring religion into it. It is well past time for him to stop doing that. I've always said it. If you insult somebody's family or their race or their religion, it is a reason to go. Conor pretty much checked all those boxes. Connor had the triple crown right there. So, on some level, maybe you can understand why Habib did what Habib did after the fight. But even then, it's not all right. It's not even close to all right. If you insult somebody's family or their race or their religion, it is a reason to go. But they went for three-plus rounds. Habib destroyed Connor. He made his point. It was one of the most dominant performances of a legend you are ever going to see. They did go. It may have been a reason to go, and they went. Not only was it a reason to go, and they went, Habib was going to make a hell of a lot of money for it. They went, Habib won, fight over, game over, story over. Nobody in that arena had any doubt as to who the better fighter was on Saturday night. So if you're enraged by what Connor said in the buildup, I get that. Take it out on his face in the cage. Do not take it out on his team outside the cage after the fight. And don't have your team jump into the cage to take it out on a guy that you already beat the hell out of after the fight. Terrible look. Terrible look and a terrible decision for you and your team on what should have been your greatest night. And then, of course, the billion-dollar question is, was Saturday night good or bad for the UFC? Dana White certainly did not think that was great for his company. It's definitely not a good thing, you know what I mean? And, and, and maybe I'm taking it harder than most people would because this, um, 
I don't know. It's just not who we are. It's not what we do. You guys know. You've been to a million events, man. This, this is not what we're about. This isn't what we do. This isn't how we, how we act. And, you know, it's, it, it's unfortunate that the night that the most people are watching, this show goes on that, that happened. And if you think that he's not being sincere, if you think that privately, deep down, Dana thought that was the best thing ever, Dana had more. This is one of those spillover events where soccer moms are buying the pay-per-view and watching it at big parties and stuff. And this is how the night ends. It's just, it's just really disgusting and disappointing for me. Are we going to fold up everything in the tents and, you know, go away? No. I mean, we're going to keep putting on fights. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a bad night for me, man. And I'm sure for, for, for many of the people in this room who have covered the sport for a long time, we know this isn't who we are. And, and t tonight's just not a great night for me. I'm not in a great mood. I, like I said, I should be in here telling you guys how many pay. I don't give a shit how many pay-per-view buys we did. I could care less right now. Literally, it's all I've been talking about and thinking about all week. And right now, I honestly, from the bottom of my heart, on my daughter's life, don't give a shit. Dana White being real. Some of you would say, no, he's not. Dana White being real. You just said it from the bottom of my heart on my daughter's life. I'm telling you how I feel about this. Now, a lot of people are going to rush in and say, are you kidding? That, that is what they're about. And that was the best thing ever. And that that was great for the UFC. That it's more viral and buzzier than ever. That that fight was a pay-per-view monster because of that bus attack. And that a rematch would be even bigger than that because now they have a bus attack and Habib coming over the gate or over the fence. And you know what? If you say that and that's your opinion, you're right in the short term. In the short term. But my bottom line is you can only survive on that type of thing for so long. And I know there's a huge chunk of hardcore UFC fans who love that. They want fighters doing those things. They want fighters trading slurs at pressers, big shots during fights, then fighting after fights. I know that some of you want that. Except this. Dana's been working really hard for a long time trying to move the UFC from the notion of human cockfighting to a legitimate sport and a legitimate business. And in doing that, Saturday does not help. Dana's been walking a tightrope for a long, long time trying to maintain that anything-can-happen feeling of a UFC fight without the anything-can-happen feeling and complete and utter chaos. The borders line criminal activity. It nearly got shattered. Nearly shattered Saturday night when Habib went Joaquin email. You could practically hear sincerely and drowning pool playing in the background as Habib went over that gate, that fence. Like I said, I could do three hours on this. Like if the governor of Nevada is at that fight and then reportedly racing out of the building after that fight, that's not necessarily a great thing. If the Nevada State Athletic Commission is holding Habib's purse and considering suspending him or Connor or both, that's not a great thing. Remember when a lot of people thought that bus attack was fake, that it was set up to sell the next fight? Yeah, sure, it sold the next fight, but Connor can't fight in New York now. And who knows when Habib and Connor will be able to fight in Vegas again. So if there is a Habib Connor too, and from a money standpoint, there has to be one, right? I'm not sure how competitive that one's going to be. If that fight does go down, the promotion is the easiest one ever. A clip of the bus attack, a clip, a clip of the crowd attack, and you don't need anything else. If Vine still existed, the promo could be a Vine and it would break records. It would be huge for the next fight. Bottom line, Dana is not thinking only about the next fight. Dana is thinking about the next 50 fights. So, Saturday was a huge night for the UFC. It generated more buzz than they could have ever imagined. But Dana is very smart. He's not looking to bounce from some, like, sugar high to the next. He's built a billion, multi-billion dollar brand with crossover appeal that has to appeal not only to hardcore fans, but to soccer moms and the like, and more incidents like that. If they pile up and they pile up and they pile up, that's going to make it more challenging. That'll affect your business. All right, that's what I have to say about UFC 229. You know, ever since I started doing this podcast, people have been asking me over and over again for advice. Normally, they want to know who to bet. Who do you bet this week? Listen, the truth is, I don't know, right? I can give you an educated take, but I don't know for certain. Now, I know a lot of you think you do know. I know a lot of you know you know. If that's the case, you need to check out my bookie. Remember, who you're betting on is just as important as who you're betting with. This is why I always tell people to bet with my bookie. 
Trust me, they are the very best bet this season. They have been in business for years, they have great reviews online, and their mobile site is so easy to use. I would only recommend a service to you that I've been using myself. This is why I'm urging you to make your way to my bookie. You win, they pay. They have in-game live betting, the most rewarding player perks in the business, and for you fantasy guys out there, you can even bet the over-under on how many fantasy points a player will score each game. Join right now, and my bookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar. Use the promo code Rome and activate that offer. Visit my bookie online today. That's M Y B O O K I E. Do not forget to use the promo code Rome when creating your account, and you can claim up to one thousand in free play. You play, you win, you get paid with my bookie. We are joined right now by a combat sports writer for Yahoo. He is a member of the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame as well. He covers both sports. Kevin Ioli is my guest. Kevin, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Jim. How are you doing? Good, good. All right, Kevin, so we don't have as much time as I had hoped for, but let's make the best of it. You've had a little more than a day to process exactly what you saw on Saturday night. Right off the top, let me ask you this. How would you describe Saturday night and UFC 229? Uh, it was an unbelievable event and a disturbing finish uh you were exactly right what you said uh, just before habib was 100 percent wrong for doing what he did um i personally think it would have pre- been prevented had uh, the ufc taken action against connor for the bus incident he basically from a ufc standpoint a league standpoint got off scot-free there was no penalty on him whatsoever um you know and in situations like this when these kind of things happen, you know, the police get involved and there may be legal action, but I think to set a deterrent, the employer has to uh, take some action, and there was none taken, and I think that kind of set the precedent, but you can't uh, cut it any other way. Habib was wrong for what he did. We're talking to Kevin Ioli. So, Kevin, in the the end of the fight itself, in the fourth round, and Habib did what he does, right? He went to the mat. He was absolutely unbelievable. Connor really didn't have much success getting up until later in the fight. But when he choked him out the way he did with that rear naked choke, what was the re- reaction in the arena when that happened? I mean, I think there was a, um, like a, a stun that Connor had tapped. Uh, that was the sense that I had gotten. But it changed so quickly. You know, there was this this surprise that Connor had tapped, and then all of a sudden there goes Habib throwing his mouthpiece and going over the cage. And so it was it a shock and horror. I mean, I think people were, you know, really afraid of what might happen. And uh, you have to give the police and arena security a tremendous amount of credit because that could have gotten really out of hand with the type of people that were in the building. You know, these are fighters and uh, people that were ginned up uh, by Connor. Uh, the fact that it didn't get worse, nobody got hurt, was, was a blessing. Kevin Ioli is my guest. So, Kevin, what happens now with the commission? They withheld his purse, Habib's purse. What happens next? And could you see any scenario where Habib gets stripped of the belt? I I can't see a scenario where he gets stripped, Jim. Um, I think the way that he will get stripped is not directly by the UFC, but by the fact that the Nevada commission suspends him for a long enough time that the UFC decides to strip him of the title. Um, and what will happen next is the commission, uh, Bob Bennett, the executive director of the Nevada Athletic Commission, who I might add is a former FBI agent, uh, he will uh, file a complaint against Tabib, and I believe he's going to file a complaint against Connor. Connor threw punches in the cage, uh, and, and he already has a history with them. So they're both going to face discipline, uh, but they will file a complaint. There will be a hearing, um, and Khabib, I believe, will be fined and uh, have a suspension. I, I am thinking he's going to get like a six-month, to nine month suspension and I have a feeling that he's going to get 10 to 20 percent of his purse fined. Kevin Ioli is my guest for another moment or so. Kevin obviously hardcore UFC fans are going to love a moment like that. Certainly not the night necessarily that Dana White wanted to have. So in your mind was that a good night or a bad night for the sport? I don't think it was either. You know, I don't think it hurt them in any way because people, I I didn't see anybody, um, you know, saying I'm never going to watch again because of this, or very few people said that. I mean, if you uh, watched the the fights, it was a great night of fights. Uh, That was an unfortunate thing that happened. Um, and it happens uh, occasionally in sports. People didn't stop watching the NBA when the Ron Artest uh, Pistons brawl was in the stands. You know, it was a terrible thing. It was wrong to happen. And I don't think you can indict the entire sport. The thing I feel worst about, Jim, 
is this is not who MMA fighters are. What you saw Saturday is 100% not representative of MMA fighters who are some of the classiest people on earth and most respectful people on earth. And then that happens, and that was completely opposite. So there was a lot of new people watching on Saturday for the first time, and they saw something that wasn't really representative of how MMA athletes conduct themselves. Kevin Ioli is a combat sports writer for Yahoo. He's also a member of the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame. Kevin, great to spend a few minutes with you. Thanks so much for doing that. I hope we can do it again soon. Thank you, my friend. See you soon. You too, Kevin. Well done. How about those Chiefs? How about those Chiefs? Because that's a hell of a win. That's a hell of a statement right there. That's the kind of W that you need to see from Kansas City if you're going to believe that this Chiefs team is different from the rest. That this one's good enough. Not just to crash that party, but to be the last man standing when the lights come on at closing time. We've seen the Chiefs start quickly. We've seen them start 5-0. and We've seen them melt down late after a fast start. But maybe it is different now. Because that's the kind of win that will turn you into a believer. That's the kind of W where you stop and say, damn. Because on the same day that Patrick Mahomes finally showed that he's human, the Chiefs defense stepped the hell up and showed that they might be for real. How do you explain this? That was one of the worst defenses in the NFL going into that game. One of the worst. I mean, take a look at that box score. If I had told you that one team racked up five sacks... You'd be asking me how many times did Calais Campbell get to the quarterback. If I had told you that one quarterback chucked it 60-plus times in the rain and got intercepted four times, then you'd probably be wondering when that gigantic dude from the Hall of Fame was coming for Jalen Ramsey's gloves. But if you want a statement, check out the one that the Chiefs defense made yesterday. A unit that was giving up nearly 30 points a game and more yardage than any team in the NFL, absolutely laid it on the Jags. Five turnovers, 12 quarterback hits, a first-half drive chart. The red punt, punt, turnover on downs, pick six, INT. Again, if I had told you that one defensive unit went ham like that, you'd be chanting, Duval! But instead, it was Chiefs big man, Chris Jones, going house call. And the two-minute offense, three wide left, one wide to the right. Bortles will run a screen. Intercepted. It's picked out of the sky. Touchdown, Kansas City. Chris Jones. It was a screen attempt intercepted by Chris Jones. That's a 325-pound dude shaking off a block high-pointing a Blake Bortles screen pass, hitting the juke button, then pimping it into the end zone like an absolute freaking boss. Two words. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I got to be straight now. The surprising part of yesterday's Kansas City win was not the Chiefs putting up 30 on Saxonville. This offense is built to score. Regardless of who they're facing, the surprising part was the Chiefs' D turning into absolute killers against a Jags team that annihilated New England only a few weeks back. Justin Houston, wrecking house. D Ford looked like the dude that the Chiefs took in the first round and not the guy who struggled to stay on the field. And when Chris Jones wasn't snatching, grabbing his way into the end zone, he was getting to the quarterback. And the Chiefs stood up to a Jags team that has made a habit of bullying just about everybody they meet up with. Look, I'm not saying that the Chiefs just transformed into a unit with Derek Thomas coming off one edge and Willie Lanier, Buck Buchanan, and Bobby Bell lighting suckers up. But they don't have to be, right? They just need to be dangerous. They just need to be disruptive. They just need to give Patty Big Gun and that crew of home run hitters a chance to get a breather, maybe a cup of Gatorade, and then back to running in that track meet. Because if that D, if that D can at least hold its own, these Chiefs are a legitimate threat. If that D plays the way it did yesterday, they might be the best team in the NFL. And yesterday, they did a whole hell of a lot more than hold their own. Mahomes had two picks, 
no TDs, and it wasn't even a thing. Two picks, no TDs, and they still bludgeoned a good Jags team. Again, let's not get this twisted. I'm not saying crown their ass in early October. I've seen these guys start fast and finish badly. But there's something different about this crew, I think. When the Chiefs were the last team in the NFL undefeated, and then a month and a half later they were 500 and about to go one and done in the wild card round, I've seen that. So we know that it can turn, and it can turn quickly. But this year might be different. Based on what I saw yesterday, we'll have a much better idea next Sunday night. Sitting at 5-0, and heading into Foxborough, the big man and his young QB get to go into the hood and Tommy's house with something we did not know they had, a legitimate defense maybe. How much of that was legitimate defense and how much of that was Blake Bortles remembering he was Blake Bortles? We're going to find out, right? But if that D is anywhere near how it showed up, look the hell out. Here's the big question. Is that their D or is their D what we saw prior to that when they were near dead last in the NFL? CJ Nikowski is my guest. CJ, good to have you back. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing fantastic. No leash or anything? Just straight running up the aisle? No, dude, he had a leash. He had a leash. It was like this little dog. I don't know what kind of breed it was. And, of course, the owner thought that was just the cutest, funniest thing ever. That is fantastic. It wasn't. I think I told you that story where the guy in front of me was passed out drunk, got up to go to the bathroom. His dog got up, couldn't find him, and so his dog just walked to the back of the plane while the guy went to the bathroom in the front of the plane. He's just wandering around looking for his owner. No, you had not told me that story, and I wish you would have. So, an airplane. Yeah, so how did that end? Uh, you know what? It was funny. By the time the guy came out of the bathroom, the dog had made his way back. So the owner never even knew that his dog was just wandering the plane looking for him and eventually settled on just going back to the seat and waiting. Yeah, I mean, they so come home. had no idea. They know. They come home. They know. Yeah. And especially they know when their uh, owner's blasting, I'm sure, too. C.J. Nikowski, yeah, <laughs> come on. All right, so I'm going to double back maybe. But, you know, there's so much baseball on right now, it's kind of hard to know even where to start or where to choose to start. But let me start with Milwaukee, who advanced with a sweep of the Rockies. There are a lot of different reasons for their success since the start of September. But, C.J., how much of that is about their bullpen specifically? Oh, without a doubt. You know, coming into the season, they were a team that everyone looked at and said, oh, it's nice. They picked up Christian Yelich. That's a really nice acquisition. And they signed Lorenzo Cain and seemed like they had way too many position players. But I think all of us that thought we knew what we were talking about were saying, that's great, but you don't have the starting pitching. There's no way you're going to be able to do this. And the starting pitching probably performed to about what they thought. They got a couple of guys that helped out a little bit more, like Wade Miley, um, when they were able to acquire him. And that was a big surprise because he struggled the last couple of years. But what they did was they leaned on their bullpen and their starting pitching was just good enough. Not great, but just good enough to match really well with their pen. And this trend is, is coming in the game because it's so difficult to develop starting pitching that a lot of teams are realizing, man, these guys are much better in shorter stints. Let's just go with a stronger bullpen and an average rotation. I mean, the Kansas City Royals were the blueprint for that in 2015. They had a really average at best rotation, but the, the bullpen just killed it. And so other teams are starting to see that. They're copying it, and for the Milwaukee Brewers, without a doubt, uh, that has been their blueprint. All right, so if they run that playbook, if they use that blueprint, is that bullpen good enough to win it all? They're pretty good. There's a lot of there's a couple of guys in there I think that people hadn't heard of, and they're and they're maybe surprising some folks. You know, Milwaukee obviously is a small market, not a lot of people paying attention necessarily to what they're doing. And if you start digging in and you start looking at some of these guys, you're realizing hey, there's a couple of pretty good, effective guys here, but they don't have the big names. Guys like Corbin Burns has been really good. I think people know who Hader is now, uh, but Soria, who used to be a closer, came over from the White Sox. He's not the same guy he was way back when. Jeremy Jeffers is having a bounce back here. They get it in the division series. They'll certainly be tested, whoever their next opponent is going to be, especially if it's going to be the Dodgers uh, in the LCS over uh, a seven-game series potentially uh, will be a little bit tougher. But the arms are there as long as they don't have any major blow-ups, and that's always the risk that you run when you rely so heavily on your bullpen. Is that day that the one guy doesn't have it, it looks really ugly really fast because all of a sudden you're relying on everybody else a lot more and then it's really hard to do that over a seven-game series because you eventually run out of gas. C.J. Nikowski joining us. All right, Game 3 of the Boston-New York Series tonight in the Bronx. What do you make of what you've seen from both those teams in the first two games? Yeah, this is fun, and it's really amazing to think the fact that the Red Sox have won 108 games and everyone's poking holes in what they do. And, it, you know, and it's understandable. When you're that good and the expectations are that high, people are really going to put a microscope on your team, and it seems like they're finding the holes. And the holes are trying to get the ball to Craig Kimbrell, 
uh, with some consistency out of your setup relievers. That's been a problem. Uh, Rick Porcello and David Price, uh, their roles on this team, and it's hard to believe because those are a couple of really good starters who got some hardware under their belt, um, especially David Price. I mean, you know, you would think at some point, I keep saying, well, he's not going to be this. He's not going to continue to be this bad as a starter in the postseason. There's no way he's too good of a pitcher. And when you give him over $200 million, everyone's like, yeah, you know, you got to prove in the postseason. And he knew that. He knew that when he signed that deal that we all believed he was going to be a good regular season pitcher. Who could you be in the postseason? And it's amazing that it's continuing that he is now 0-9 and 10 postseason starts with an ERA over six uh, in his career. And so that's a real struggle for them. And that's why you can look at a team as good as that lineup is and the fact that they won 108 games, they have some serious pitching question marks. Now, they also deal with Chris Hale coming into this one, and he dominated. So he showed he was healthy. The fastball was down his last regular season start. It was dialed up to where we usually see it for the postseason. That has to happen. There's no way that they can make any kind of run without the real good version of Chris Sale. Uh, but the Yankees are in a somewhat similar situation as well. There's question marks, but they got a much better bullpen. Uh, the offenses match up really well. And uh, this is going to get good. And if the Yankees win tonight, man, there is going to be full-blown panic in Boston. Yeah, I mean, CG, I agree with that. But that thing about David Price, and I'm a David Price guy. I really like him. But is is it just one of those things? I mean, how the hell do you explain a guy who's that good, who's had that kind of success, being 0-9 in 10 postseason starts? How do you explain that? And then how would you go about addressing it? Like, if they could fix it, they would, he would. But mm-hmm. how do you address that? What do you do? It's tough because you figure the more you talk about it, the worse it gets, right? If you sit there and talk about it and a guy's in, in his head, he's like, yeah, you know, not that he needs that reinforced. Here he knows what's going on. So trying to talk a guy through that is a real challenge. Now, he's had a couple of good starts. I think good good enough starts where, you know, it's six innings, three runs. He had a couple of those. Um, but they just ended up being losses because he wasn't getting any run support. His first three starts, he got to combine two runs of run support. And he's got now, I guess it's four starts where he got zero run support. So that's been part of it, but it doesn't matter. Six ERA is a six ERA. So as far as the wins go, the times that he's pitched decent, uh, he hasn't been able to, uh, to get himself a win. And then there's been the blow-up starts. The last two an inning in two-thirds, you go back to two years ago, it's three and a third, and it's been a real struggle. Trying to talk him through that, though, is tough. Um, you know, he's a guy that is not afraid to throw a lot of strikes. Boston's just not a good fit for him as far as that ballpark goes. The Yankees have been a disaster for him. Uh, most of what he throws is really hard, and it's in the zone. And even though he can light up some guys when he's hitting his spots, he does have a smaller margin for error when he's got so many pitches that are somewhat similar in velocity. And I think that's probably been the bigger issue is that when you go against uh, postseason lineups are usually facing the best. Not that he can't be a good lineup, he can, uh, but it just hasn't worked out at all. CJ Nikowski joining us. All right, really quickly to the Dodgers, who you mentioned. Game four of that series is this afternoon. Ronald Acuna Jr. had a grand slam in the second inning last night that gave Atlanta a 5 nothing lead, played a huge role in keeping their season alive. What did you make of that at bat in particular and how the huh. 20-year-old has shown up so far this year? Well, what's great about what we have going on in the game right now is we've got a lot of these young studs that are not scared at all. And you think about, hey, a guy breaks in, you got to give him a little bit of time. And it's no accident, I think, that a lot of these players that are really comfortable are coming from Latin American countries. And it's just fun to watch. I mean, they come with energy. Uh, they're not scared at all. And it's just been a really nice trend, I think, good for the game uh, and good to see guys like him. First of all, the 3 pitch was a ball. So we should have walked with the bases loaded. It wasn't even close. And Gary Seusham called it a strike. We were all kind of up in arms watching it. Uh, at the time, and then all of a sudden he gets himself another strike and he hits it out of the ballpark. That's a really good example, I think, of a young player that you would expect otherwise to maybe get worked up about the previous call, maybe overswing, maybe chase a pitch, whatever it is, but he stays within himself and he just absolutely crushes the ball. Because the ball doesn't really carry out of SunTrust right now as much as it did a year ago. And he's fun to watch. And it's unfortunate that Braves did what they did as far as holding him back at the beginning of the season. They waited about three weeks to call him up, but you got to kind of let that go. They'll have him for seven years under control now because of it. But he's a special player, and I know he made the error later and he got a little bit overexcited on the ball he didn't need to. Um, but this guy is just really fun to watch. He has hit at every single level that he has been at. It's been phenomenal to watch and not surprising at all to see him come through in a clutch spot in the postseason already. All right, so Houston-Cleveland, Game 3 underway already. The Astros win the first two games. Cleveland, CJ, hitting only 100 in the series. That's the lowest batting average of any team in a divisional series since 1995. How do they go about turning this around, or when you look at what Houston's doing, is it just not possible? So the issue they have, of course, is they're going up inc- up against incredible pitching, right? And so that's, that's the real problem for them in trying to figure out how do you do this. Now, they're a team that doesn't strike out a lot. Whenever I see a lineup that doesn't strike out a lot, you think, okay, they'll be able to match up well uh, against good pitching, but that pitching has actually struck out more Indians than they usually do. So 
it's you know it's Verlander, it's Garrett Cole, it's putting some of their starters in the bullpen like they did a year ago with the Astros. It's a scratch and claw situation. I don't think you're going to see any kind of big runs scored here. So actually what ends up happening for me is there's more pressure on the pitching uh, to keep it close just because the offense is struggling so much. So Clevenger goes today. So far he's looked really sharp. Uh, through a couple of innings, they're going to need that. that. That has to stay. I got to imagine Trevor Bauer probably plays a pretty big role in this because, as good as Clevenger has been so far, and obviously this is a must win, he has struggled against the Astros in his two starts this year. So, first sign of trouble, he's probably out of there. So, I think a little bit more pressure on the pitching, knowing not that you're ever expecting the Indians to explode offensively as good as they were this year. I mean, the Astros are just so tough on uh, both sides of the ball, but their pitching is filthy, especially in the rotation. And when you can start Dallas Keuchel third, as a former Cy Young Award winner in a, in, a, in a postseason rotation, you know you're dealing with some legitimate depth. Listen, as good as you are on baseball right now, and maybe nobody's better at this point, you might be better at life. I have to ask you, you hit up a cryo chamber recently. I, I've got to know, what was that like? How did that go? What did that do for you? So I love this. So David Kaplan from uh, works at the Chicago market, does pre and post for the Cubs. We had him on radio, and he was talking about it, and he's got a ton of energy, and he gave a real good sales pitch. He wasn't trying to get me to go. Just him listening to him describe it, I was like, i got to try this. I loved it, man. I'm in. I mean, it's, just, it's like three minutes. It's a really fast three minutes, um, and you walk out of there, and you're freezing cold, but it's not like going in a cold tub. Like, you know, as an athlete, I've been in a, in a cold tub plenty of times, and I always like the feeling when you get out, of it, get out of it. And my wife did it, too, and she was scared to death because she hates anything that's cold, and she was still kind of iffy on it. But I, I walked out of there without a doubt with some endorphin release, um, you feel a little bit colder in some areas than others, and that kind of reminds you of where you maybe need to drop a couple of pounds, uh, which is always kind of nice. I felt like my I could just have like knocked my love handles right off uh, because they were ice cold. But it was cool. I enjoyed it. Uh, I will be back. Uh, it's good for recovery. I felt good the rest of the day. You know, it's like anything, right? It's almost like going to the chiropractor. Like, oh, you really need to go a lot to get the full effects, and I guess I'm probably going to fall into that trap. All right, so let me – I mean, is it uncomfortable? Is it painful? Is it hard? It's three minutes? It, it's, yeah, you got to rotate. They rotate you like every 30 seconds. The girl that's in there with you standing in the room is having small talk with you just to make sure you don't pass out or anything. And then they, you kind of rotate around. It's near the end. Um, when she tells you like 20 seconds left, you're like, all right, please be the 20, faster 20 seconds of my life. You start to feel it a little bit. It's, it's really, really cold. Um, but it's not like putting your hand in ice water. You know, like that kind of where your skin gets really cold and almost feels like it's burning. It's not that. Um, it's your whole body that gets really cold, but it's uh, it's pretty cool, man. I mean, you know all the stuff that we read, and everything's supposed to be great for you for every single reason, right? Joint pain, feel better, live longer, sleep better, all the stuff that we always hear. Uh, Cryo makes all those uh, claims as well, but I, I just love the way I felt when I walked out of it. Yeah, and plus you got to keep doing it. All right, so one last thought. I'm in my heaviest part of my travel schedule, so I've got to know, where do you come out on flip-flops? Flip-flops <laughs> on an airplane. What do you make of people who rock them on an airplane, and then what do you make of people who take them off? So I actually had a guy send me a picture of the day of a guy with flip-flops and then flipped them off right next to him. So I just I don't want to see your bare feet. That's the problem. I don't think anybody really wants to see them. And remember that you know, we're on a plane. We're in close quarters. Uh, to me, it's, it's an awful thing to do. And then you take it to another level when you then cross your legs or put your foot on your knee, and now your foot's like hip height. Like that's where that should be a violation. I, I always wish that, air, that airlines would just kind of make that as a public service announcement. I guess they're afraid to – you know, offend anybody, and everyone's got to be careful what they say. But I would love to see one airline step up and say, we do not allow, at least for men, open-toed shoes. I understand with the ladies, and they got way more footwear options than we do and why they may want to go that route, and I, and I can tolerate that. But I just I don't want to see a dude's feet. I love me some Baco. Let's go there. Tracy in Bakersfield. Tracy, good morning. What's up? How are you? Hey, I'm doing fine. It's uh you know what? We need to have Dana add uh, about three feet to that cage up on top so that people can't jump out. But besides that, you know what? I love McGregor and stuff, and I am ready for that the rematch. All right, and Tracy. Stuff. Tracy, so you're a 57-year-old grandmother who bought that fight and you love McGregor. Why do you love McGregor? What do you love about McGregor? I love his swagger, the way he walks. And the way he talks, he will talk smack and get up in your face, and I like it. Have you bought his whiskey yet? Have you tried that? No, I, well, I don't drink. Okay. All right. So who did you watch that fight with? Uh, my husband. Okay. You see a McGregor guy, too? Oh, yes. So what did you guys think when he got choked out? Oh, I was uh, very upset. Didn't believe it. <laughs> 
Would you pay for a rematch between those two, and do you think it would go any differently? Uh, yes, I would, and I think it would go differently. I think that McGregor would whoop his ass. <laughs> All right, Tracy, one last thought. Have you, have you long been an MMA fan, or is this more of a Conor McGregor thing? Uh, no, honey, I've been watching you guys since <laughs> you got started and stuff. Um, almost 10 years. How long? Almost 10 years. 10 years. All right, then. All right, yes. Tracy. You got it. All right. grandkids and stuff got me into it. Nice. Well, I love it. Listen, great to have you on. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And that's what I'm talking about. Your demo. You don't know what your demo is. You don't know what their demo is. You don't know what your demo is. That's a 57-year-old grandmother who's all about Conor McGregor. Good night now! How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.